Hey everybody, Ethan here. Today, since we're talking about the Sandlot, I went over and got an exclusive interview with James Earl Jones. That's right, Darth Vader himself, the blind baseball enthusiast that I can't remember his name exactly from the Sandlot, but I went over there, I interviewed him, we talked about his life, we talked about acting, we talked about baseball. It was fascinating. I'm going to play you a clip from the interview right now, uh, but I can't do that because I recorded it all to a tape cassette and then I hit that tape cassette over the fence. I was playing a, a softball game and we didn't have a ball so I thought oh we'll just use this cassette because I want these kids to think that I'm cool and include me in their games and then unfortunately there's a big dog that lives next door and well you get it I made this whole expansive vacuum machine and it didn't work and then I tried to go over there and I got afraid the dog would eat me so I stopped trying but I really hope you enjoy the podcast it's almost as good as that interview I got with James Earl Jones Bad science. did the movie get it right Bad science. Or will we have to fight? Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bad Science. I'm Ethan Edinburgh, and today we're talking about The Sandlot, the greatest movie ever that's about baseball and a huge dog. That's how we all know it, right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyways, my guest here today, my first guest, is stand-up comedian, actor, and writer Irene Too. Hi, thanks for having me on the pod. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for being here, Irene. I believe we met briefly in San Francisco at Sketchfest last year. Oh, that is probably true then. Yes. I, I didn't saw- remember we had met. I'm sorry. No, that's totally fine. I wouldn't remember me either. And when I met you, I was uh, in awe because I had just seen you perform and it was fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Please look up Irene and watch her stuff and go see her perform immediately. Stop listening. Yeah, don't listen to the rest of this. <laughs> There's no reason to listen to the rest of this. I'll see you next time. Uh, no, joining us is assistant professor in the developmental and social areas of the psychology department at UCLA. And you were recently awarded a National Science Foundation Early Career Award, Dr. Jennifer Silvers. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Dr. Jennifer Silvers. You have to say it that way the entire time. The entire podcast. (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Silvers. How are you feeling, Dr. Jennifer Silvers? I feel fantastic. Nicely caffeinated. So, yeah, it's a a good start to any podcast. Yes, I agree. I'm also here drinking a black coffee. Do you like coffee, Irene? No. You don't do coffee? Hence the water. I see. No caffeine? Tea? Um, I'll do a tea sometimes. Uh, I have to do like a green or even lighter tea at this okay, point. Okay, keeping it, it low caffeine. it just gives me a headache. Booze? No, can't drink. Can't drink? Physically cannot drink. Should we get into it? Maybe she can cure you. She's a doctor. <laughs> I think it's genetic. Okay. Yeah. What happens to you? Um, I just get uh, very ill, like I throw up a lot. Whoa. I think you shouldn't drink. <laughs> yeah, that's therefore, my, that's, that's my what professional I said. <laughs> yeah. I think okay. you're making good choices. I think you made a good choice being here today and watching this film. And from what we just discussed, this was your first time seeing The Sandlot. Yes, I was one when it came out. <laughs> so therefore, I had never seen it. Okay. And what do you think? Um, I mean, not very feminist. <laughs> no, that However, is true. However, cute movie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But beside, uh, but a little cringy at times. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I hadn't seen it for a long time. And so I didn't remember any sort of cringe fest that I was in for. But uh, then there were a few parts in particular, a few yeah, lines like, that ooh. we'll get to where I was like, oh, that didn't age very well. That yeah, was no, bad yeah. news. Um, when did you first see it, Dr. Jennifer Silvers? And did you enjoy it? Um, so I first saw it when I was in, I believe, sixth grade. So I was about the age of the kids in the movie. Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was really interesting watching it now from a totally different life stage. Yeah. 
Did you like it when you watched it the first time when you were a kid? I did. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I loved it when I was a kid. Even when, even though you were a girl? I did. And they basically hated girls in the movie? <laughs> I did. Except for the one hot, like, <laughs> lifeguard. That they were right. rapey towards. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. At the time, I think um, maybe it was the 90s. Maybe it was my impressionable young mind. But I kind of just didn't even, I don't remember noticing those parts. And mm-hmm. this time, it, they were much more salient for me. Yes. So that was uh, that was definitely one striking difference between watching it in 2019 and in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. I had the same reaction to this part you're talking about, which I'm sure everybody knows what we're talking about, which is the lifeguard who mm-hmm. thinks that a kid is drowning. And then in an attempt to save him, we see that he's not, he's faking it and then makes her like make out with him, essentially, yes. like holds her head down. Yes. Yeah. But, so, but the but worst she- part was the <laughs> end of the movie. <laughs> Okay. Where, oh, where they get married? Where they He's get rewarded. married. Right, he like, is rewarded. What? Yeah, yeah not great. doesn't make any sense. No, she seemed to, in, they implied that she enjoyed it because she like smiled soon after and in the voiceover, our narrator says like, it was cool. Yeah. He's like, yeah. we didn't have the balls to do that and he did. Yeah. That's cool. It not was, great. I, I was just like, this would never happen. I mean, right. besides the whole giant dog thing. Yeah. I mean, but uh, sure. but this part, I was like, this would never happen. That was the most implausible element. It yeah. actually might have been the most implausible element. Wow. Yeah. I didn't think about but it that way. If you have to think about where were the moments uh, that there were gaps in reality, I think in some ways that may have been. Yeah. Not the part where the, the famous baseball player lived next door. That part was, was okay totally reasonable. There, too. there are a reasonable number of retired baseball players. You sure. Know, so that makes sense. Whereas I, I'm not sure about how many successful marriages that begin with fake, you know, fake drownings. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. I, I haven't come across any yeah. in my time here on Earth. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about the Sand Lab. You're a principal investigator yes. of the Sand Lab, which I assume is either all about the Sandlot yes, or you, you studying it. sand. Yeah, very close. Um, So SAND is our cutesy acronym that stands for Social, Affective, Neuroscience, and Development. Okay. So we study the brain and behavioral development of children and teenagers, focusing Mm -hmm. on basically uh, changes relating to social and emotional processes. Okay. So how do kids learn to manage their emotions as they get older? How do they learn how to make good decisions? Mm. How do they form relationships? Wow. So yeah. when you said that Irene's making a good decision, that's coming from yeah, no, it's coming good from source. Someone who studies it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And and uh, piggybacking on that, we were talking a little bit before the pod and you casually mentioned that you're living in a dorm I, yes. with a hundred, 900, with 918 year old yes. uh, humans yes. and your family. Yes, that's all true. Um, so I, I thrive in chaos, it would seem. But yes. I so I have a two year old and a seven month old that I, I produced um, and, and live with me. <laughs> Congratulations then, on that. Yeah, thanks. It, it's it was, a good production. It's been a busy couple years. Um, and then I'm also a faculty in residence at UCLA. So in addition to my day job, I live in a dorm. Wow. And I provide some degree of, of mentorship to the extent that I can mm-hmm. uh, uh, to the, the residents in the dorm. Wow. So I get to interact with... How long have you been living in this condition? Uh, <laughs> Is that offensive to say no, that? Th- so I've been living... I'm like trying to think of which one. So I've been living in the dorm for a year, okay. a little over a year. Wow. Um, and yeah, I had one child when I went into the dorm and now I have two. Uh-huh. And what was your and partner's reaction to this move? This was a good confirmation in the stability of our relationship that we were both thrilled with this idea. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> So, Irene, not it no. doesn't seem 
I want to live with nobody. <laughs> that <laughs> fear me. So again, all. that would not. I think that would be not be a good life choice for you. Then. Um, oh, I think yes. we're we're getting good confirmation of what what is a good nine hundred. Yeah. So we have a separate apartment that's attached to the dorm, mm-hmm. but. Um, I love it. It's a I mean I study adolescence, so it's kind of fascinating to get to live with young people and really see what their lives are like. Yeah. Particularly as a professor, a lot of times your interactions with students are limited to the classroom where they're very stressed and trying to figure out the material and mm-hmm. um, it's really nice to get to see them as more whole humans and understand what their their fuller experience is like at the university. Yeah. Um, and I get to com- contribute to programs I care about. Sure. Um, I get to really get to know what the student experience is. Yeah. And you get to listen to a lot of cool hip music, probably. (laughs) Uh, Loud volumes, I would assume. You know, the kids today are so amazing and so well behaved compared to when I was young. Really? They they work incredibly hard. They're committed. They are so focused on making the world a better place that... I very rarely have any disturbances. Wow. I feel um, like you're just living in like a good dorm. Yeah, this is the gifted part of UCLA. It might be UCLA, UCLA. But overall, I mean, the data suggests that kids are engaging in less risk-taking behavior than ever before. Um, so if you want to talk huh. about the people who are really bad teenagers, like, look at the boomers. They were awful. But the, yeah. the young kids today, they are the safest generation in history physically. Anxiety levels are extraordinarily high. Ah, but um, they're okay. studying like crazy. But uh, <laughs> like, that's really it. I mean, they're they're incredibly well behaved on average. Well, if I had to choose, that's a great option right there. They're just studying <laughs> like crazy. That's yeah, way yeah, better yeah. than, uh, you know, spray like, painting. Oh, I didn't and... hit a kid, but in my brain is <laughs> running in circles. <laughs> um, I want to take a, uh, a really strict left turn here for a second <laughs> and play a game with you guys about Babe Ruth, who is in this movie. I don't know if you guys are baseball fans. Baseball fans? <laughs> it's fine. Okay, so... Zero baseball fans on this podcast today. <laughs> About baseball. I know most of the rules. Okay, that's and pretty good. I knew good. who Babe Ruth was, and that kid did not know yeah. who Babe Ruth was. That, that was sad. So, yeah. Poor guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he made it through. He became a commentator. Yeah. So he, he that earned That is actually stripes. shocking because then he had to learn so much about baseball. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it did kind of seem like I was confused at the beginning of the movie a little bit, which I know is a f- incredibly stupid thing to say that I was confused at the beginning of the Sandlot. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a pretty basic movie, but it I, I was I didn't know his knowledge on baseball because it seemed like he was a fan of baseball, uh, but then he didn't know about Babe Ruth, but he knew the kind of the rules of the game when they went and played. I don't know. I don't think he knew anything when he went and played. No, I don't think so. I think they taught him while we weren't watching the movie. Oh, okay. In the deleted scenes. In psychology, we would describe that as a growth mindset. Mm. That he, you aren't just born knowing something or being good at something or being bad, but you can work at it and develop skills. Okay. So I think that's a positive that's message. That's definitely what happened. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, I don't know much about baseball, um, so I didn't know any of this stuff. And I thought it might be fun uh, to play this game I'm calling The Great Quizzerino. <laughs> and uh, and so either of you can guess at this and we'll try and just get through it quickly. I found some just weird facts about Babe Ruth uh, okay. after a quick Google search. So number one, what was Babe Ruth's real name? George. Yes. Oh, yeah. Didn't they say that in the movie? They he did. He does say it in the movie. George Herman Ruth. That is correct. Uh, one point. That's worth $5,000. Congratulations. Great. Um, but it's coming out of the National Science uh, oh, Foundation. that's a bummer. Yeah. But it will go to you too, Irene. So, oh, yeah, you just have to email them or uh, Emily will set it up. Did Babe Ruth pitch? Only when he was playing in a conference where he had to. Whoa, whoa. This sounds like you know a lot about baseball. I'm just going to go with no. 
Okay. I did not think he pitched because from the little that I know, it seems like most pitchers don't hit well, and he was known for home runs. Uh, But he was a great pitcher. He was one of the best left-handed pitchers of all time, apparently, and he pitched a 14-inning complete game, and it was the most innings ever thrown by a single pitcher uh, in a postseason game. I think things were a little wild back in the early days of baseball. Super wild. Everyone was playing everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He switched a few times, yeah, Yeah. positions, and it it seemed like the Wild West out there. There was all kinds of stuff. There were only about five people. Yeah, there was five baseball players. Players. They were Half the time they were climbing into the stands, beating people up. So they were doing exactly what the kids were doing, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes. They were like, we're playing all the things. Yeah. Yeah. They're all switching around. It was crazy. Um, okay. The candy bar, Baby Ruth, is that named after him? No. Okay. Irene? I mean, what else would it be named after? So I'm going <laughs> to say yes. Okay. It depends who you ask, because apparently the candy bar was introduced in 1921. Okay. This was at the height of Babe Ruth popularity. He was like just breaking home run records and stuff. But the Curtis Candy Company officially claims that it was named after Ruth Cleveland, the late daughter of former President Grover Cleveland. Now, Ruth Cleveland died of diphtheria in 1904. That was 17 years prior at the age of 12. So it's pretty clear that the story was just a legal ploy to get them out of having to pay Babe Ruth. So they capitalized on the premature death of a child to not have to pay extra money. That is exactly correct, Dr. Jennifer Silvers. But do you you think they decided that after people kept asking them and then they're like, we got to find a person named. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds a little post hoc. Right. They were like, oh, I don't know if we're going to get in trouble for this. Let's try it. And then it started selling a bunch and they were like, what? We're totally going to sue you. And they're like, no, no, actually, this uh, unfortunate girl. Anyways, um, That's really sad. it's super sad and weird, and I can't, I couldn't believe that was true. And also, I want to promote my new uh, sneakers that I want everyone to buy that are called LeBron James, which are <laughs> named after a childhood dog I had who died of dysentery. Um, okay, on July 5th, 1924, uh, Babe Ruth was running after a ball in foul territory. What happened next? I have no idea. The ball hit a bird. Ooh, I love that. Beirut knocked himself unconscious by running headfirst into a concrete wall. He was out for about five minutes, but then got up, played the rest of the game. He went three for three, (laughs) hit two doubles, and then played another game. They had a nightcap. They had a doubleheader. So I thought that was kind of fun. And then did he go to the hospital? No. I don't think they they believed in concussions back then. Yep. (laughs) He was just out. (laughs) You would not recommend that they continue playing? No. As a doctor? Yeah. I, to be clear, I'm not a medical doctor, but I still oh. just would not recommend that. Okay. I, yeah. I trust you That innately. doesn't sound good for your brain. No, probably not. Although, I don't know how smart he was in the first place. Yeah. What was the bellyache heard around the world? Have you guys heard of this? The what? Bellyache? The bellyache heard around the world. Know about this? No. I have no idea. Sounds like way too much chewing tobacco. Okay. Good guess. Oh, yeah. That was uh, that's a good guess. Um. I'm just going to guess that he, I was going to say that he burped real loud, but then that would have been like the burp heard around the world. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. bellyache is, it sounds specific. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know how bellyache is heard. I guess there's like that That's grumble I'm saying. sound. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. It's very weird. Um, okay. So Ruth missed the first 41 games of the 1925 season because of a quote bellyache, but it was widely rumored to be an STD because he had many, many affairs. 
That is a really disgusting explanation. Belly ache. I was hoping to find, just so you guys know, like cool, interesting, uh, heroic facts about Babe Ruth. Instead, you got gonorrhea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which STD was it? Because you didn't say. I don't know. I'll get back to you on that. I'll email you. He was married, I think, several times he was married. So he has Babe Ruth kids? He has Babe Ruth kids. And, And I read, and I don't know which one, but I know one of the kids found out like later in life that her mom was not the woman she thought she was. She was like a different... Like she found out that Babe Ruth had her with a different woman and then had to be like, oh, whoops, that's my mom now. So uh, anyways, but like you said, baseball in the old days, it was wild. Is that bad for uh, psychology? Yes. Yeah. I was going to ask about that uh, (laughs) because our main character has a stepfather. Yeah. And so I wanted to, I don't know, hear your thoughts on that, the portrayal of that. I mean, I think that it was... If you have Dennis Leary as your stepdad, I guess that I can imagine how it would be a little awkward at first. But I think that they I think they actually did a nice job with the parenting in some ways. Um, One, I think that without saying it explicitly, they did a nice job of describing the impact of having a parent die Mm. Um, that. I think that you could see. Oh, he died. I missed his that father part had of the died. Movie. Yeah. I thought they just got divorced. No, he had died when he was young. So that was part of oh, what they, they implied. Part. That was part of why mm. he was a little bit gotcha. Didn't know as much about baseball, and also I think I think that they did a nice job of suggesting that that was part of why he felt a little bit clingy to home. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was a little bit afraid of leaving his house. He was a little bit nervous about going out and exploring the world. Right. He said and, he had to work up the courage exactly. to finally go. Yeah. And I think that that was a, a reasonable kind of um, of conclusion that you might draw from what a kid's experience would be of having a parent die at a young age, that that's a, a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they did a nice job of showing sort of the trepidation with trying to form, you know, a relationship with a step parent, especially when you're already kind of a grown up kid, but mm-hmm. you're still a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I thought that was a reasonably good portrayal of it, even though I wouldn't say the stepdad had a huge role. It was more the idea of him in mm-hmm. the movie than his actual presence. Yeah. I thought Dennis Leary came across as a wonderful stepdad eventually. Mm-hmm. Oh, eventually. Yeah. At the beginning, I was like, oh, this guy's an asshole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> He's busy. Then he goes out of town. And then yeah. Go, goes out of town <laughs> yeah. for work. Yeah. I'm like, mm, okay. Come on. Yeah. What's going on there? Dennis. I assume his name's Dennis in the movie. I don't know if that's true. Um, I also wanted to ask, since you've uh, studied kids, that I, what bothers me a lot of the time going out, I don't know if this bothers you, Irene, ever, but like there's so many kids now that are watching stuff or mm-hmm. playing games on iPads or whatnot. Do you think that that's an issue or affecting kids in a bad way? They're watching The Sandlot too many times. That's that's the, what they're doing is yeah. watching The Sandlot <laughs> too on much. repeat. You know, I think that there's, it's a good question. I, I, there have been concerns about media consumption in children since media first existed. I mean, yeah. there's you can read reports of people having concerns about the printing press and how that's going to <laughs> corrupt the minds of the youth. And then the same about radio. And then the same was written about television. Wow. So I don't think this is actually as new of a phenomenon as we as we think it is. Okay. Um, the evidence is kind of mixed because it's really hard to study um, to to determine what is the effect of, say, watching a ton of stuff on your phone or on your computer versus the people who choose to do that. Are mm-hmm. they different in some way from people who do not? Right. Uh, that's always a hard thing to separate out. Uh, in in of itself, I mean, there's evidence that you should not probably be consuming vast amounts of, of media as a very young child just because it's so important to be getting face-to-face interactions and doing other things. Mm-hmm. But at an older age, if it's done responsibly and with a, 
an adult or a parent of some kind sort of supporting you and helping you make sense of the information that you're processing, it can doesn't have to be a negative thing at all. It can be very healthy okay. to learn to kind of consume media responsibly. Um, however, if you're spending hours a day, say, on social media and it's causing you to feel anxious and depressed, that's not going to be a good thing. Mm. If it's interfering with your sleep, that's not going to be a good thing. Yeah. But it can be a very valuable way to make friendships, to maintain them, to understand and learn about the world, um, particularly sometimes for marginalized kids who are who don't have access to other kids that they feel connected to. It can be a great way of finding other kids like them out in the world. So I think that there can be real positives to using media in certain ways. Um, it just has to be done responsibly. And it's something that adults shouldn't just remove themselves from and hope that their 13-year-old makes good decisions right. on their own. Yeah, that main character, if technology had been a thing, yeah. he would have just been on the computer the whole time. Yeah, he, There would be no movie. There would be no Sandline. <laughs> he'd just be the guy playing the games yeah. at home. Yeah, he'd be into just mm -hmm. Call of Duty yeah, or something yeah. with friends, yep. <laughs> online friends. Yeah. So, I don't know, I guess in that way. Then the he would have more friends, I guess, because his mom was like, you gotta have friends. Yeah. Like, oh, I can't <laughs> talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> but then he had, I don't know if it's better or worse now that I'm thinking about it, because then he went to the Sandlot and I initially thought like, oh, that's clearly the better option. He has these real life friends. He's getting out yeah. in the world. Also almost got killed by a dog. Yeah. Uh, yeah and uh, made this weird contraption, which seems illegal for kids to be building. <laughs> exactly. So I was just impressed they built so many contraptions yeah. that all worked. That was yeah. my favorite part of the movie was mm -hmm. its pro-science stance when it yeah. came Same. to extracting a ball from a crazed dog. I love <laughs> they that. They built a catapult. They built that the vacuum ro suction. robot thing, the vacuum suction thing, where I'm like, I don't think that would work. <laughs> but they tried. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty good. You get nine kids together, who knows, man? That was, I, I thought, a very positive message about seeing yep. how they problem-solved as a group. Yeah, I wanted, I, I had something about that, um, which was probably ridiculous. Okay, so you had a publication, Performance and Belief-Based Emotion Regulation Capacity and Tendency, Mapping Links with Cognitive Flexibility and Perceived Stress. So this That's might be... That's really new. I'm surprised that you got that. Well, I do my research. This yeah. might be me misunderstanding that completely. But does that mean that because they were under such stress, they were able to have a heightened ability to create solutions and get this ball. That is not what that paper said, but <laughs> you, okay. you could imagine something. So there, there is, however, a lot of research that suggests the right amount of stress is important in order to perform. Okay, here we go. So if you have no stress, you don't really care and you don't try about you don't try something. Mm -hmm. um, if you have too much stress, you can become incapacitated. So there's kind of a sweet spot. Sweet stress spot. Exactly. That's what you want. So stress in of itself is not a terrible thing mm -hmm. as long as it's a controllable amount or a moderate amount of stress. And if you have some degree of skill to be able to respond to it. Yeah. Irene, you strike me as somebody that has a sweet spot of stress oh, and an ability to I, respond. I wish. I was just going to ask you, I was like, how do I get that sweet <laughs> spot of stress? Or which, which side are you on? You know, I always feel like I teeter between both extremes where I'm like, oh, I'm just like, I'm chill, you know, mm -hmm. I don't need to worry. And then I feel like I'm not motivated enough to do more stuff. Oh. But you do stand up. I do. But I then mean, that's I, like yeah, by definition. But, you know, I'm also not famous. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, how do I? And then and then I'm like, then on the opposite side, I'll be like, oh, I really have to get this done or whatever. Yeah. And then I feel like I put so much pressure on myself hmm. that I am like overwhelmed. And I'm like, I'm just going to not. So that's yeah. a good question. What's the like, How do you, get do you have a tip spot? of yeah. yeah cruise control here? A little bit. So, I mean, I don't think there's one solution, but one piece that 
I mean, it sounds obvious, but it, it makes sense is to break down big obstacles into bite-sized pieces. So rather than trying to tackle, rather than saying, I'm going to be healthy, mm-hmm. thinking, all right, I'm going to try to exercise once a week. And you're starting with things that are sort of manageable so that you did re- you kind of build up your strength mm-hmm. and reduce the likelihood that you're just going to fail immediately and then feel bad about yourself. Got it. Um, another piece that's important, I think, is figuring out how to get your support circle on board to help you with stress. So that was something in the movie they did well, you know, relying on your friends and surrounding yourself by people who are going to make you resilient in the face of stress mm-hmm. is really, uh, I think, crucial. Yeah. Um, also, we tend to do better under stress if it's something we've practiced a bunch of times. So I'm sure the first time you did stand up, you were more terrified than the 10th time. And I know that was the same for me when I started having to give talks in public and when I started having to teach that at first I thought I was going to pee in my pants. And now, thankfully, I don't have that sensation every time um, I'm in front of students. So I think that, that part of it is just knowing that getting that familiarity with knowing things can be stressful and they also can be okay, and just doing that over and over again. Great. Yeah, my issue is just like every time I want to like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this, that or whatever. It's hard starting, Yeah, you know, like mm. tricking yourself to do it the to, first like yeah. 10 times. Right. And then afterwards, you're like, oh, I just do this. Yeah, thing. exactly. It, like you have to make it habitual. Yeah. But I, that's why I think sometimes just doing the smallest first step towards it. Like if I'm putting off working on a paper, I'll be like, all you have to do is open Microsoft Word. That's all you have to do. Yeah. First step. Like, and then the next day, <laughs> all you have to do is write the word the, you know, just like, be, <laughs> yeah. and then put once your you, name on it. Kind of once you open the floodgates, it gets much easier, but it's just that first, first step. Yeah. I, I like make that. Make my steps easier. really small. Really yes. small. Yeah. Breaking I down. I think that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like not even about small goals, it's micro goals. Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> nano steps. Just getting and, and kind of easing your way into it. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's cool. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. Okay, so, uh, (laughs) true or false here, you're currently conducting longitudinal behavior and fMRI research to examine the effects of early adversity, Uh including international orphanage care on emotional development. That's all true. Okay, so can you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. So... Um, There's a lot of evidence that what happens to us very early in life can have a disproportionate effect on our long-term development. So what happens when you're a young child versus what happens when you're 36 like me is going to probably matter more for your mental and physical health in the long run. Um, One of the most extreme forms of stress a child can experience or adversity is not having a parent so kids are pretty flexible about who their parent is, but they are not flexible about their need for caregiving. Mm. We're born um, into this world very needy. Kids, uh, really, the one thing that they that they absolutely need is someone to take care of them. And so kids who uh, experience orphanage care have this viola- violation of that expectation that someone's going to take care of them. Even if they're in a pretty good orphanage, There's usually a lot more kids than there are caregivers. The people who are taking care of them are rotating around and there's a lot of turnover. So it's a very stressful experience for young children. Mm -hmm. Um, What my lab is currently doing is looking at kids who were in orphanage care for the first couple of years of life, were then adopted uh, into wonderful, loving homes. And they usually don't remember having been in orphanage care. They were adopted so young. 
But at the same time, we know from other work that they're at a disproportionate risk for experiencing anxiety, depression, all kinds of other um, mental and physical health issues. And we're trying to understand why that's the case. Mm. So many kids are incredibly resilient to those early experiences, but some really struggle and we want to know why. And one uh, hypothesis that we're testing is that actually early experiences program your immune system and that that can have lasting effects on your brain development. Wow. So we're checking oh. out if that's the case. So it's possible that kids could get more uh, diseases or they can get sicker? We know that that if you look at middle-aged adults, when people start to have chronic diseases, one of the biggest, or not one of the biggest, but a big risk factor for all kinds of chronic diseases is experiencing stress as a child. Wow. And so we don't know when that starts to happen and why, and we don't know if... Um, how the immune system interacts with the brain after stress exposure in humans. So that's the, those are some of the paths that we're trying to test out. So interesting. So these hmm. kids are teenagers now that we're testing. So long before they would be likely to develop mm -hmm. something like, you know, elevated blood pressure or the things that you usually see in um, an adulthood. Yeah. And so we want to kind of get them while they're young so we can understand when do these kind of risk factors st first start to emerge and can we do mm -hmm. anything to intervene? So are you saying that if I was stressed as a kid, I'm gonna die <laughs> you should get stressed right now because yeah, yeah. now i'm getting stressed <laughs> thinking if i used to be stressed you know the good news is that none of these things are deterministic it's it's probabilistic so if you experience a lot of stress as a kid it increases your risk a little bit but there are a million other things that can reduce your risk mm. as well so including things like what you what you do today, if you have good uh, close relationships to help buffer you against stress, if wow. you develop skills to help you manage negative emotions. Um, so, for example, one of the things we've seen in kids who've been who are adopted, the strength of their relationship with their adoptive parents is a huge protective factor. So those kids who have particularly strong relationships with their adoptive parents seem to do much better over time than those um, who don't. There's also just a lot of individual variability, and we don't exactly know why, but that's one of the things we're trying to figure out. Wow. It just seems like the more we advance, the more the mind affects our physical bodies. Yeah, we're not. it's not separate. You know, the, yeah. I, our brain is an organ, and it's connected to a whole bunch of other systems uh, in our bodies. And so there's, there's no, we kind of create an artificial division sometimes, but it's all the same from thing. the body's perspective, there isn't one. Yeah, it's all the same weird machine, weird... Yeah. Hot sack of blood. <laughs> hot um, sack of blood. <laughs> yeah, that's also the name of my EP, which you should check out, Hot Sack of Blood. Uh, it's mostly hip hop. Um, so I wanted to talk about bullying a little bit um, because obviously there's some bullying in here. There was one line that w when we were making reference to how like certain lines were a little cringy. Yeah. Uh, there was one where they're going back and forth with insults and then the final blow is you play ball. Yeah, oh, you, you play ball like a girl. Yeah, yeah that was the worst. And then they're they like, oh, yeah, <laughs> let's go throw down tomorrow. It's like, OK, <laughs> yeah, that was the worst insult. That's over the line now. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I guess you, you kind of touched on it earlier, saying that kids are a lot um, safer Mm -hmm. uh, than they used to be. I mean, I experienced some bullying. Mm -hmm. I experienced also like witnessing some hero activity. Yeah. You know, some friends of mine would really be active and step up and stop people, which was great. And so anyways, just wanted to hear your your thoughts on yeah. that, how things have changed maybe. There's a lot. I mean, I, I would say that there's a lot more 
focus in schools, or at least for a lot of schools today, on anti-bullying curriculum that mm-hmm. I don't recall being present when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, what I'd say the data suggests is that changing the norms for what is considered cool and what is not is the most effective strategy. So having, for example, um, some classmates who are willing to step in and say, like, bullying is lame, that's yeah. much more effective than having teachers monitoring yeah, for like, bullying. Like Benny. Benny was very cool. Yeah, Benny, Benny was, was cool. Exactly. <laughs> so Benny, you need Bennies in the world. That's yes. uh, So that's one of the strategies people have tried to implement in schools sometimes is to sort of identify the Bennies mm-hmm. and train them on how to intervene effectively yep. uh, as a way of reducing bullying. But um, the, what's interesting also is that it's not like kids need a thousand friends to be happy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of evidence that just having one good friend can prevent all kinds of negative mental health effects. Mm-hmm. Um, kids who have zero friends are at really big risk yeah, for, for mental health problems. There's not as much of a difference between having one friend and 25. Wow. Um, cool. There's some difference, but. that popular kids? <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you, idiots. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so, just as healthy yeah. mentally. What? What? <laughs> so I think just having like, I think that that's important for kids to know too, is just having any kind of, of an ally mm-hmm. is really. Well, what if you're like, you have like one friend, but that friend is like an asshole. Right. Then that's a problem. That's okay. a good point. So it needs to be a good, good friend. Yes. Yeah. Decent have, humans. Exactly. That's important sounding. Um, I think that's that's a, a good point. It's very important. But overall, um, I know I wouldn't say there's any evidence that bullying is worse today. And if anything, it's okay. probably better. <laughs> and I blame advocate. for all, everything comparatively. I'm always like, oh, the kids today seem very well behaved. <laughs> I mean, I love that view. I would I would like to take that. Um to take the other side of it, do you think that there is a, I don't want to say need, but is there a benefit to being uh, cruel or uh, let's say yeah, what if, teasing? Uh, what if you used to be a bully as a kid, hypothetically? Hypothetically. Mm-hmm. Very hypothetically. It's yeah. a long pause here. <laughs> We're all thinking about that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, kids, so kids don't bully for no reason. They bully because it gets them things. Oh, okay. um, and you do see an increase in bullying right at around the age of the kids in the Sandlot. So, yeah, it, wait, how old were they? They were 12, about 12. 13, yeah. Um, so in elementary. Bar mitzvah time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Now we're on the same That's the scientific yeah, term. <laughs> <laughs> They're getting ready. Um, so you see that the bullying behavior is not rewarded before that age. For the most part, bullies are often seen as kind of weird and kids won't, don't want to be around them. So kids who are aggressive, they oh, are, are so not So it becomes like, like cool. It becomes a little bit cooler towards mm. the end of elementary school and the beginning of middle school. Yeah. Um, and kids do it because it helps them kind of control the social narrative. Right. It helps them make sure that the people they like are sort of are, are the ones who are in power and the ones they don't like are not in power and it helps them maintain a sense of control in the environment. Mm. Um, it has nothing to do with today's political climate, by the way. <laughs> so weird. Like, I can't imagine anyone else I who know. would do this, like, so much strange. less a grown man. But um, Just kids. Yeah, just kids. So you do see, I think that, so there's a normative uptick in, in kind of aggressive behavior that happens around that age. What I think matters is the way it comes out and also whether or not it sort of persists over time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's normal to have a little bit of that at around the age of 12. But it some kids, it's just for that little period of time. And then they they kind of cut it out because they realize that's that's lame. And yeah. then others become president. So 
Right. So you can still achieve all everything, all your dreams. Um, yeah, I was I was asking for the like thick skin type um oh, yeah. theory of like, you know, I don't know. It like, might be like, good. like a little bullying is good, but not too much. That is if there's a sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good sweet question. Spot of bullying. Uh, no, I think that there I don't know about bullying. <laughs> that's what I'm promoting. <laughs> I think that there so there's I don't know about bullying specifically, mm-hmm. but there is evidence that a little bit of a bad is good. Yeah. Okay. So there's kind of this idea of a stress inoculation um, that when you're growing up, you need to get some, you need to experience some degree of adversity to yeah. know that bad things can happen and you can still be okay. Great. I'm not bullying gotcha. you. I'm not insulting you. I'm stress inoculating yeah. you. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Great. That's what I tell my kids every day. Every <laughs> day. <laughs> if I didn't insult you, then you would be weak yeah. and uh, too sensitive. Yeah. Uh, okay. Great. So um, there's there's music. There's like great music in this movie. The soundtrack is great, obviously. And I was reading about the the whole classical music uh, myth when you like play classical music for kids, if it actually benefits them or not. And the limited thing that I found was that it doesn't have an effect, good or bad, but that if they play classical music or like sing some classical music, that that will help their brains. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I think... The evidence that it, listening to classical music hel- um, helps kids, that's pretty limited. Okay. Uh, maybe it's out there, but I haven't seen a ton of evidence to support that. Okay. I think learning any skills it, that involve deep training and practice as a kid can be helpful and healthy, Great. Um, including musical training. Mm-hmm. Um, one just uh, sort of side note that I think is interesting. I, I have some colleagues that have done really interesting work looking at music from your childhood mm-hmm. and suggesting that if you listen to music from your childhood, it specifically reduces anxiety, whereas music oh. from other points in your lifespan does, does not as effectively. Whoa. I want, is, so, does that mean like a selective memory thing where we're just remembering like good childhood? We don't know why or okay. how this happens. So they've hmm. um, there was first a, a study published on this in rats that from what I understand maybe happened by accident initially. Okay. And they started to realize that they had this kind of anti-anxiety effect on rats to listen to music that they that was played when they were pups. Whoa. Um, and then some <laughs> folks have started looking at this in humans. But okay. there's um, some evidence that so even if you don't like the music from your childhood. Wow. It seems like if you're experiencing stress, listening to music from your childhood might be I mean that more totally makes sense. Adolescence. Yeah. It's like nostalgia 101 it feels yeah. like. Well, well, but she said even if you don't like the music. Like people might say they well, prefer other music, but well, if you're under stress, it seems like it helps bring down your stress levels well, a little bit. Yeah. So, if you're ever in a high stress situation trying to mm-hmm. So how early in childhood is this music that you have to play? So I don't know about what is exactly is the right, uh, the the perfect age, but probably between something like five and ten, I would imagine. Oh, mm-hmm. when you're so. a pup. Yeah, yeah, a pup age. Your pup years. Your pup years. What would that music be for you? Classical music. Oh, really? I the, my parents only like gave me that music when I was a kid. So, mm-hmm. you to so you're going to get the double boost, right? Of, of so class. I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're stressed, if you have a, uh, oh, I don't man. know. Apparently, I got to listen to a lot of Beethoven. Well, yeah, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Do it. You have to listen to it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. I had some fun facts about the movie. So, number one, James Earl Jones is in this movie. Obviously, Darth Vader, great actor. We all know James Earl Jones. Love James Earl Jones. I don't know why I have to say his full name like I do yours. Yeah, that's important. I mean, he's also a doctor. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Dr. James Earl Jones. <laughs> um, so I thought it was funny how in this movie he plays a baseball enthusiast and, and well, previous baseball player, yeah. ex-baseball player, and then baseball enthusiast. And then also in Field of Dreams, which came out around the same time, he's a super baseball enthusiast. Yeah. And I found out that he hates baseball. That's so sad. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Wait, does he hate baseball before doing the movies or Has after? always hated baseball, apparently. That's what I found out. And they're like, we got to get this guy. This is the guy. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be the only huge movie star who plays baseball enthusiasts. Yeah. Um, So I thought that was great. And then I wanted to find out about uh, s'mores. We're all fans of s'mores, right? yeah. yeah. Come on. I don't know when the last time I had a s'more was, but I would love one anytime. Um, So I was like, where did s'mores become a thing? When was that invented? And I found like different. There's a whole mystery on the s'mores. So if you guys have definitive evidence, send it over to me. But this is what I found out. Uh, No one knows for sure who invented them, but there's a a recipe that was published in 1927 for s'mores, s'mores, which was the joke they made in the movie too. He's like, how Uh can I have some more or something? I hated that. (laughs) You don't like wordplay? (laughs) No. (laughs) Enjoy wordplay. No need to come see Irene too. Not going to get that. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I would I say mean, that's the only like joke in the movie that's a little easy. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it was like sort of funny and it was like the 50s in yeah. the movie. So yeah. it's pretty easy. Um, anyways, so yeah, some mores in this 1927 publication called Tramping and Trailing with the Girl Scouts. Uh, Loretta Scott Crew uh, was making these for her Girl Scouts uh, around a campfire. So she's credited for having the recipe. Loretta Scott crew. I just thought that was interesting. So it was a Girl Scout. This is the original Girl Scout cookie. Yes. The Some original wars. is yeah. a, actually like a sandwich. Yeah. Sort of. I feel like they should have made that into a Girl Scout cookie. That's in that what I'm case. saying. They should really capitalize on it. How would you package it? Do you need to beyond just s'more as a Girl Scout cookie? No, I'm saying like literally <laughs> is oh, you it coming in a little bag? The, <laughs> no, you would just put all <laughs> the, the ingredients <laughs> separately in the bag and oh, then okay. you make it yourself. Oh, it's like you a know, little... Like, like how you do normally except for instead of... It would be very wasteful. <laughs> it's like individually packaged <laughs> s'mores in a box. Yep. Uh, and flammable, potentially, yeah. if so, you include the, the oh, campfire. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't include like a match or like something <laughs> with it. Some kindling. Yeah, some gas. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you need to make a fire. Yeah. And, oh, here's some chocolate yeah. and a marshmallow. Burn the box. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's oh, a good that's, idea. Oh, that is yeah, smart, that actually. That is a good flammable. idea. Flammable. So, but it's just one use. So every time you buy a box. <laughs> no, 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 you snip the box. Oh, okay. They have like little yeah, yeah. perforated yeah. Highly flammable box. It's going to create a fire for hours. Um, okay, there's a scene, famous scene, where they all vomit on this. Yeah. They they take chewing tobacco. Ever done chewing tobacco, by the way? No, I, I, I've never done tobacco. I've never done chewing tobacco, but I had a friend in college that would come over and do it, mm-hmm. and it was the most disgusting thing that I've ever experienced. Not to insult anyone who does it, but... Was it the, was the way the kids did it, like the way people do it? I mean, they put so much in their mouth, though. Yeah, this guy would put, yeah, in his lip... Yeah. You know, in between yeah. your teeth and your lip and it would just sit there. I'd never seen it before. So it's I guess really gross. Yeah. For me, it was a lot. And then he would just keep a cup around yep. and spit, spit into the cup. And I was the whole time like, man, my mom would be losing it right now if she was <laughs> witnessing this. Just spitting in the living room into a cup. And it smells really disgusting. Yeah. That's my, I had a roommate who did it. Oh, really? One of your 900 or a previous <laughs> Wait, roommate. Why does it make when you I was spit? in college. Why does it I make think you it makes spit? you salivate. 
Just mm. just having it in your mouth. I think so. Well, I brought some here, so let's all oh, try it out. Oh, God. And then we all throw up in this room. Oh, there's the pod. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I found out that they were actually, it was fake tobacco, of course, that the kids were using. Oh, I mean, I would hope. Yeah. It was the hope. 90s. You never yeah. know. You never know. Um, but it was made of licorice and bacon bits. and Because uh, it did look weird when they were eating it. I was like, why does it look like they're eating like... Like mulch or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah it That's did kind look, of the what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. it did seem legit to me also. Yeah. Um, but okay, so licorice and bacon bits, they were all putting it in their mouths and then they were all going on that ride, like for real, and they were filming yeah. them. And so they said the combo of the ride and this licorice bacon mixture actually made them all sick. They all like the so movie. <laughs> so they all threw up and uh, some people <laughs> got throw up on them for real. And oh, I think really? that made they it had into to pay the, movie. the extras extra. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and in case you're trying to make the throw up, if you want to have the same replica of that, they were using split pea soup, baked beans, oatmeal, water, and gelatin. So feel free to make your own Sandlot mm. barf. There's the weekend for you. <laughs> and that's your weekend. <laughs> um, okay, I have one last note here on dogs. There's obviously this huge dog, Hercules, yeah. in the movie. Uh, do you guys know what kind of dog it was? Was it a bull mastiff? Uh, I read that it was an English mastiff, but, okay. I mean, it seems really like you're on the right path. I don't know much about dogs. We were talking a bit yeah. about Katie, Emily's dog here earlier, and you had like a laser focus. I'm, on, I'm very into dogs. Very into yeah. dogs. Um, I told you my seven-month-old is, and I'm like, I don't know where he gets it from. <laughs> yeah, I think we know. Um, so Give I was... flashcards. <laughs> <laughs> this dog, this dog. I was, I was curious if it was like an actual pet or like a good dog to have this English Mastiff and found out that it is. It says it's a dignified yet good natured animal and he is loving and affectionate towards family and he has a calm demeanor which makes him a good companion for older children. But if you have younger children, it could be dangerous because it's huge. Yeah. So I just wanted to put that out there as like, if you want to get that dog and you have a young kid, probably don't do that. But this little tagline. Besides that, go ahead and get an yeah. English Mastiff. That's cool. Dogs? You like dogs? How did that dog keep chasing the kid? What do you, <laughs> wait, Sorry, what do you mean? Wait, like when he broke out? I don't yeah. know if that was just some magical realism or something going on. There. Oh, totally. But wait, what's the what's the part that you know. have an issue with? I just with? was like, oh, they're still running. This is a very long scene. This would never happen. Yeah, big yeah. dogs don't usually have that degree of endurance. That's what I was like. That's mm. that's not real. That I mean, I know the movie's not hot. real, but still, it's not real. It was yeah. like a super dog. Yeah, but I also think the dog was like so desperate to hang out. It been in that yeah. backyard it was a lonely for dog. forever. Was it was that? like these kids are always playing near me. They yeah. never invite me to the game. And why doesn't that guy ever come out and play with the dog? Yeah. He could he could have yeah, solved. Why does he never come out of the house? That's what I'm saying. He could have solved this whole thing quick and been like, oh, you guys lost your ball over here. Throw it back. Yeah. Well, he Sandlot's did say over. they could have knocked. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> that very was good point. Funny. That was a yeah. good, yeah. I did like, though, the, I, you know, I, I didn't appreciate this as, as a kid, but as someone who studies emotions in children, I did feel like it was a nice metaphor for one of the, the most important passages of childhood is figuring out how to conquer your fears. Yeah. You know, and that it's it's appropriate to be afraid of scary things. Like that's what keeps us alive, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the same time of knowing when to take risks as well and when how to sort of get that uh, the right degree of management of what you're afraid of. Yeah. Seems like another sweet spot scenario yeah. here. It's always a sweet spot to find, guys. Always. That's you know, if you might die, do it. 
<laughs> also the lesson yeah. today. <laughs> if it seems like your life is on the line, jump in. You but like, the <laughs> reason, That'll be a sweet spot. But the reason they thought their life was on the line was because of their own, their own. it was a creation of their own. Yeah, yeah. Their it was imagination, real. right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I think that was, that was, uh, that was a good portrayal of what our emotional lives are like. That mm. it's not the actual things, the it's actual threats. Yeah. It's what, how we interpret them. So matters. we think it's like life or death, and exactly. it's totally not at all. It's like sometimes cares. it can be, but most of the time, probably not. And mm-hmm. it's I think that that was a, an important lesson in the movie. Yeah, uh, it's important to get a, a realistic handle on what how threatening things really are. Yeah. Speaking of which, we have to go. Uh, our time is up. <laughs> See you guys later. <laughs> no, um, we usually do a little plug section here. Irene, do you have dates coming up? Something people should check out. Where can they find you? Um, just find me online. I don't remember all my show dates off the top of my head, but you can go to my website, irene2.com, or find me on social media at irene underscore tu. Beautiful. Please do. She's fantastic. Dr. Jennifer Silvers. <laughs> should people take your f- class? Should they join the Sand Lab? How can we get involved here? Um, they're welcome to check out our, our website for my lab. Um, and I will be teaching again, I guess, in March. Right now I'm on leave from the from teaching because of the baby. But Oh, okay. That makes sense. They're welcome to check out my website. Baby oh, Sebastian. I was going to say they're welcome to check out my baby. <laughs> yeah. He, he's pretty cool, too. <laughs> welcome to check out my baby. What's uh, your baby's website? <laughs> What's your baby's social media? Yeah, not yet. Uh, not yet. But you know, both the babies will get there. Eventually. Okay, sweet. And, of course, we will post as soon as your babies are on social media yes. what their tags are, what their handles are. Yes. <laughs> so people Very can... important. Yes. Uh, well, I thank you both for being here today. I had a great time. I Thanks learned a lot. Us. Thank you. And I'm sure next time we'll talk about the sequel. I think there's two sequels. Sequels. Yeah, they're making a a new a new reboot. one. Well, they're doing a reboot. Oh, I didn't know about oh, that. Oh, I thought. You, oh, you're talking about the original sequels. No, they're doing a reboot. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a prequel. A prequel Ooh. to the Sandlot. Yeah, they're younger. They're even younger. It's toddler Sandlot. I don't know if they're younger or if it's a different group of kids. I think uh, it's like something oh, with a dog. The same universe. The Sandlot universe yeah, yeah. is being explored. Okay, well, hey, stay tuned for that. Hercules puppy. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I think it's about that dog. Well, I'll see you guys next time for the Sandlot Hercules puppy, (laughs) and we'll talk then. See you later. Bye. Bad Science is hosted and produced by me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our associate producer is Emily Feld. Our editor is Lucas Bollinger. And our executive producer is Brett Kushner. Follow us on Instagram at Bad Science Show. That's at Bad Science Show. Or feel free to send us an email. Badscience at Seeker.com. That's badscience at Seeker.com. Let us know what you think about the show, any movies we should do in the future. I always appreciate getting your emails. And of course, leave us an iTunes review. That lets other people hear about the show. And I'll see you all next week. Bye.